Good after even morning to you. Trying to cover all of the bases there. I'm Dave Burse from Additive. Welcome back to the second Future of Advertising podcast. Slip your shoes off, put your feet up, and make yourself comfortable. Unless you're driving a car, that would be reckless and irresponsible. But probably quite exciting. Hopefully episode two will be a slight improvement on episode one. You'll be glad to hear that this time around we've got higher production values. I invested a new microphone, and that should hopefully make the interviews a little bit clearer. Unfortunately, however, I'm still getting to know how the recording machine works, so the keen-eared amongst you will be able to hear some little patches of distortion in there. It's kind of like an interview recorded in the style of an early Stooges album. I'll be aiming for the more the crystal-clear Beyoncé-style production standards next time around. I'm also just about to launch a regular competition for the podcast, but before that, I'll fill you in on what we've got in store for this episode. You'll also find some more information on my blog. There should be a link to it somewhere in the podcast blurb. Or if you can work out how to spell my surname, you could just visit daveburse.com. We'll be talking to Rory Sutherland, the outgoing president of the IPA, spectator columnist, TED speaker, and the vice chairman of Ogilvy. If you know Rory, you'll know that he's got a lot to say, so much so that I've had to split his interview into two. So this is the first part of it. If you want to hear the rest, you'll just need to stay tuned for future episodes. And we'll be talking to Kevin Duncan, the ridiculously multi-talented author of marketing and business books. In particular, we're going to be talking about his greatest hits books that summarise a pile of must-read business tomes. Kind of like those cheaters study guides that used to use at school instead of trolling through Macbeth, you know, the kind of thing. We've also got the big five tips on creative production from Glenn Taylor, who's the founder of Taylor Gems, and I'd highly recommend that you have a look at their website to see their work. It's absolutely astounding stuff. And we'll have a regular review of advertising from my daughter. She's a bit more positive this time around, which is great news. Let's see if that sticks when she becomes a teenager. And I'm launching a competition for all you lovely listeners. I should have launched it on the first podcast, but I didn't think about it until afterwards, until it was a bit too late. So it's actually two competitions, one for this podcast, one for the first podcast. So hidden in each one of these are my interpretation of three advertising jingles, which I've played on a variety of crappy instruments that I found around my home. All you have to do is be the first person to correctly name all three of them, and if you're the winner, I'll send you a random pick of uh, 10 CDs from my personal collection. They won't all be Pepsi and Shirley albums. There'll be some decent stuff there too, if you're into murder ballads and suicidal dirges. Uh, so just email your answers to podcast at getadditive.com. Okay, let's get things underway. First up is a chat with Kevin Duncan. And to play him in, here's a bit of music from one of his very own blues albums. Take it away, Kevin. sitting at my dining table here with Kevin Duncan, who is uh, an author, consultant, musician, lover, fighter. I don't know. How, how would you describe yourself best, Kevin? 
uh, all of the above, probably. Um, yeah, I like the idea of being a varied type of person. Um, this is obviously hard news for people who work in a corporation and don't get time to uh, indulge in their hobbies all the time. But I think if one's self-employed, then hopefully one can do some work, enough work to... Uh, spare the time if you like to do your books, your writing, your music your travel, flying birds of prey, whatever it is maybe even spend some time with the partner and kids who knows <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Spotted on your website is a, a picture of you with, uh, with a bird of prey, is that something that you do? It is indeed, yeah um, I really like I like the symbolism of birds of prey and there's a particular thrill to be had if you can do it and not be scared about it, is to fly big ones so my favourites are really big eagles. And uh, I know that the, the, the scale is ridiculous. It sounds very scary, but they're really, really interesting. Um, so, for example, if you hold your arm out and a massive fish eagle uh, lands on it, uh, it's got a nine-foot wingspan. <laughs> so it's absolutely massive. Now, you might think that's like being engulfed by some sort of cape uh, or bashed on the head, but in fact they're incredibly light and uh, they're really, really interesting to see if you can get them to come to your arm and all that sort of thing. Plus, you, you get a nice day out as well. Now, you've got seven books that you've written, according to your website. I think you've written a few more. Um, can you name all seven books? Can you remember them all without, without looking at a cheat sheet? Yes, I can. Well, I hope so, because I reckon I think I've now written, yes, over half a million words, because, yeah, they average about 50,000 words a book, and... There are about 10 of them out now. Okay, so the first one was called Run Your Own Business, and that did what it says on the tin, and that's done okay. It came out in 2005, and it's been reissued now uh, last year, so that's done well enough to be reprinted and so on. Then came one called Growing Your Business. Uh, last year, we repackaged that as Small Business Survival yeah. to reflect mm -hmm. harder uh, conditions. And the, the particular point about that book is the moment that people reach when they've been running their business for two or three years and think, uh, how are we doing and where are we going and I'm bored with it, all the direction's gone. I then got a three-book deal with a bunch called John Wiley and um, there are three books there. One is called So What? and that uses children's questions to uh, attack supposedly difficult business questions and the general line of argument is that they're not as difficult as you think. Uh, another is called Start, that's how to get your business underway. And the third one, which has been particularly popular, is called Tick Achieve, and this is how to get stuff done. And that now has metamorphosed into uh, a big training program. So I've trained over 2,500 people in that now. But it's also apps, podcasts, and all those modern mm. things that go with it. Uh, then Greatest Hits. I got a two-book deal to produce marketing greatest hits and business greatest hits which i think we're going to talk about in a minute mm -hmm. and just latest there are two that have come out which are uh, mini summaries of the first two books and they are half the price and half the cost uh, <laughs> for those people who really want a slim volume what a deal yeah what a deal and they're called make your small business thrive and run your own business successfully and finally finally next uh, at the end of this month comes one called revolution and this is called, uh, it's about tame technology, get your life back. And this is where you have to take a test to see if you're edicted to your machines and devices. Uh, and if you are, then you follow the taming technology tips 
to improve the balance of that. Fantastic. I think there's some uh, some of these housewives on Facebook that have been neglecting their kids by playing Farmville too much could uh, maybe do with that book. Um, so to, to summarise the, the greatest hits book, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of them. Uh, and, and of course, they're available on an app and I'll put links on the website as well so you can pick them up on Amazon and in the, the Apple Store for the, the iPad and the, the iPhone. So could you, could you summarise what the, the marketing greatest hits and the business greatest hits idea is all about? Sure. Yeah, this all started about 10 years ago when being newly self-employed, uh, or that's a euphemism for saying I've got absolutely nothing to do, <laughs> uh, I started reading a lot more. Uh, making up for lost time. So I, I set up with, let's say, 20 or 30 books which I thought were important to read and I created them as a training course which I used to call Crash Course in Marketing Theory. And uh, simple format, on one page I would say this is what the book says, uh, this is what's good about it and this is what you have to watch. And this then enabled me to go around training people who haven't got the time to read them saying you really should be aware of this concept, that concept particularly for agencies so that they are strategically savvy in front of their clients and clients because they want to know as well. Well, over, over a decade, of course, that library had built up hugely. And so now it's a blog with over 120 books on it and people can go on there and they can search by author or category or book title and just help themselves. Uh, and it's also a series of podcasts. And then I got a publishing deal for the two separate books. And each book has got 40 books in it, if that makes any sense. Um, and at the beginning, you've got very short chapters which link themes together, such as leadership, creativity, organisation, strategy, and so on. Uh, and then you can even get a one-sentence summary of the book. Mm. <laughs> and I like the idea, it was partly why I produced the apps, is that with your iPhone, you can do a quick flick under the table during a meeting <laughs> and suddenly uh, sound as though you know exactly what eating the big fish or the long tail was or whatever, uh, when in fact you haven't actually read it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm, uh, as uh, someone who suffers from dyslexia and I get intimidated by books and, and particularly uh, long books, what would be the books that I should really struggle through at the moment? Are there sort of latest books that you've read that you think are, are worth looking at? Yeah, this is a really difficult question to answer, and I'm often asked it. Um, the main point is that I would never recommend to somebody that they wade through a massively long book if it's not their style. So the received wisdom in the business publishing world is that uh, very few people read beyond the first chapter. So what I try to do uh, is distill all of that for people and then alert them to the nature of the book. So, for example, something like Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat is very small type, and six, seven hundred pages. Yeah. Uh, now, to say, would I recommend, close quotes, that to somebody? Mm -hmm. And the answer is not in order to make their life a misery so they have to read 700 pages when they don't really want to. However, would I recommend that they know what it says approximately in a digestible form so they can then have a view on it? And the answer is definitely yes. So we get to this interesting stage where, say, certain books that I read probably could be expressed as an essay more mm. so than a full book. And in a way, I regard it as a, hopefully a really helpful service and thing to do to summarise this stuff so that people don't have to read it all. But if they think something's got real merit and they want to find out more, then the apps ping you to Amazon or you just order the book. No. The fact that you've got these books here and, and I can, instead of going out and buying uh, the latest Malcolm Gladwell, I can, I can read 
a summary of it in, in your book here, have any of the authors get pissed off? Have any of uh, the publishers actually get back to you and said, hold on, you can't do this? What, what's been the issues you've found? Uh, the answer is there are no issues. Uh, I investigated this really carefully, and there are a number of reasons why. Uh, first of all, it isn't a copyright law issue because I'm not lifting lock, stock and barrel any uh, runs of text whatsoever. I'm merely pre-seeing. Um, the second thing is that, uh, in fact, I am an advocate of the material that I'm summarising. Broadly speaking, if I start reading a book and I think, this is rubbish, I'm not going to include it because I don't want to be, as it were, passing on. Uh, I don't want to be negative about it either, but I'm not going to include it because it's of no help to the people reading the blog or, or reading the books. Uh, much more important, though, is that by giving a pre summary, I build into all my materials uh, the ability to, if it's online, for example, if you've got the app and you say, oh, I really like the look of that summary, I'll get the real thing, you just hit the button for Amazon. So in that regard, I've almost created um, sales tools for all those authors that are represented. And having read hundreds of business books, you know, I'm sure you'll be able to see that there's, there's patterns of thinking that are happening. There's, there are particular areas that are becoming maybe sort of trendy for people to look at and write about. Um, is there anything you can see, particularly with the, the, the podcast being uh, focused on the future of advertising, marketing and communications in general, um, is there anything you're seeing that is a future for the industry? Anything that's coming out of it that is a direction that the industry should be moving in? Yeah, this is a difficult one. The, the hot subject at the moment is behavioural economics, and uh, it's an extremely difficult thing to pin down. The industry as such probably really likes it because it's got the word economics in it, which makes it sound viable, responsible, as close to scientific as you can possibly get, and therefore very appealing with regard to verifying that whatever communication you're embarking on is as scientifically done as possible and definitely going to create a return on investment. Um, as for trends and so forth, I actually think that the, the, most of the writing in the last three or four years has been cleverly synthesising, observing and sweeping up uh, huge developments in things like digital and the internet, yeah. things like Wikinomics and Here Comes Everybody, Cognitive Surplus and so forth. So in a way, that's almost like a commentary narrative, if you like, of the year 2000 to 2010-11, uh, as opposed to futuristic stuff saying, oh, isn't that going to be interesting? Uh, it's almost as though people are living in the future and trying to work out what's happening and commenting on it more so than predicting the next thing along. So we've both been involved in the, the IPA's behavioural economics stuff and, and you're continuing to be involved in it in, in, in terms of helping to summarise uh, all the, the behavioural economics books uh, for all of us lazy ones that are involved in the IPA behavioural economics uh, committee. Um, what, uh, what are you seeing as, as the real sort of power within the industry? Is this something that the advertising industry in general should be adopting? And if so, how should they be adopting? Have you got any ideas there? Yeah, well, I think it, it is good that it is adopted, um, and it's there are lots of ways of adopting it. I mean, some agencies, and particularly planners, will say, well, hang on, this is now a, a new codifying of the way we always work anyway. In other words, we instinctively understand consumer behaviour, and this is another typology or construct for working with it. Um, where it gets particularly interesting is the degree to which 
uh, one believes that behavioural economics is a truly understandable science, and if so, then if you get it, close quotes, you can apply it, and if you can apply it, then presumably you can make people behave in, in the way that you want to. Mm. Now, if you're a, a politician with a bad agenda or a brand that's being a bit naughty, you could argue that's quite dangerous, if it's true, yeah. <laughs> because you would then be forcing people to do things, buy things they don't want to buy. Mm. Uh, I suspect, however, that it's not that absolute and therefore we, uh, we haven't got any particular cause to worry yet. And uh, I suppose, maybe sort of wrapping up here, you've, uh, you've got a collection of business bullshit, which uh, I'm, I'm rather fond of, and, and you've, you've collected loads of these over the years. Um, what, what's your favourite examples and how many have you actually collected? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the answer to how many have I collected, it's getting on for three, four, five thousand. I mean, it really is vast because I've been doing it since 1982 when I started in the industry. It's impossible to choose a favourite. It is possible to collect a few together and have a laugh. I mean, I'm just holding here my fifth little book of business bullshit. What I've done for the last five years is write down all the rubbish that my clients speak and then do a little cartoon <laughs> and an attempted translation and send it back to them. So I'll give you a couple of examples for, for amusement. I like this one. We need to denormalize this. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. Well, in my translation, I wrote abnormal. That's what we're asking for, <laughs> um, which I thought was fun. I did enjoy this one. You can't ease the throttle back after six months. You need two years to get your head above the trench. <laughs> <laughs> so where uh, analogy uh, collides one with the other, yeah. it always produces hilarity. Um, he's pyramided out on that one. That was another particular one. My translation there, we haven't moved on since the pharaohs. Um, and there was one that uh, on, on, on your website that I, I sort of spotted. It was something about stabbing a seal with a banana. <laughs> yeah, stabbing a seal with a banana. I love that one because clearly this guy has chosen the wrong, um, <laughs> the wrong implement. You know, if you were really going to stab a seal, you'd presumably go for something sharp, but this idiot's picked up a banana. <laughs> and you just picture the thing sort of glancing off all the way. Um, yeah, it, nuts. I guess uh, as a sort of final flourish here, I put this in the latest one. Um, fuck the consumer, listen to the marketing director. <laughs> now, that's not bullshit, but uh, it is perhaps a, an example of where... <laughs> ego takes over yeah. if you like yeah brilliant well kevin thank you very much um on the website there'll be links to all the books and uh, to the um the app store as well to get the apps and uh, thank you very much indeed thank you you're welcome if you visit the blog you'll find more information about kevin's books and apps along with links for you to buy them should you so wish Right, next up, here's an advertising review from my 11-year-old daughter. Here's Advertising Schmadvertising. Advertising Schmadvertising Advertising Schmadvertising Go and find some genius you can steal from YouTube To win yourself a pencil or a little gold cube Advertising First up today, we have 
Anchor Butter's television ad made by cows since 1886, which is done by CHI and partners. Let's have a look at that. So, was that an ad you liked, or did you think that was a load of old rubbish? I quite liked it. What was it you liked about that ad? Um, how cows are doing basically what humans are doing. So, does it? do you think it says that uh, there's lots of machinery involved, or do you think it says that yeah. it's natural? Machinery. But do you think it says that it's uh, the, the butter itself is pure and natural? Uh, yeah. It says that as well. If you go to the supermarket, as you do sometimes, is it something that would make you want to buy this more than other butters? Mm, yeah, a bit. Yeah? Okay. Looks as if that ad has done its job. <laughs> On to the next ad, then. Next up, we have a banner ad. Um, trying to mix it up here and have a little bit of interactive stuff. And the banner ad is for IKEA, and it was done by Grubberts and Partners in Germany. So on the page here, spelt in, uh, in, in Swedish kind of way, in an IKEA box, and it says, assemble the banner yourself and save money. So let's see what you can do here. Um, take out frame. Plug in fluorescent lamp. Insert glass plate. Switch on. You did your part, now it's our turn. What, what did you think of that uh, as a banner ad? It was quite good. You liked it? It was quite fun? Yeah. Did it feel as if it was quite Ikea-ish? Yeah. it give you a real Ikea experience? Mm. So is that one that maybe you would tell people about? Yeah. Um, would, is it, was it quite fun to play with? Mm-hmm. And do you think it told you why you should go to Ikea to get that stuff? Yeah. And what's what's the reason? Um, well, because it looks quite easy to build and it's something percentile. Yeah, well, it's, 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 got some, yeah. it's got some money off it as well, so they've made it cheaper. Well, it looks as if uh, that ad's working as well. <laughs> so after last month being about three ads that you didn't really think too much of, we've already got two beauties here. Right, so let's have a look at our third ad here. Go Compare's original advertisement. Let's have a look at Go Compare. Car insurance, eh? What can you do? What did you think of the Go Compare ad? Well, I don't really like it. You've seen it before? Yeah, millions of times. Does anyone run around the playground singing Go Compare? Mm-hmm. Um, do you like these people? No. Do you want to hit them with a large stick? Yes. Um, is this an ad that you wish had never ever been made? Yes. So, thumbs up or thumbs down for that one? Down. Definite down there. Well, that's our three eyes for today. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. If you've got any work that you'd like my little lady to pass her judgment on, either your own work or someone else's, just drop us an email to podcast at getadditive.com. Next, we've got the first part of our chat with Rory Sutherland. I've known Rory for about 15 years now. He was my first creative director when I fled my homeland to ply my trade with the Sassanachs. 
He's amazingly smart, amazingly well-read, and a painfully lovely chap to boot. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Rory Sutherland. I'm at Ogilvy here with Rory Sutherland, who is the president of the IPA for the next uh, few weeks at least. Hello, Rory. Hello. I'm in my lame duck period of my presidency, so it's uh, very relaxed. I just wander around and everybody ignores me. Delicious. <laughs> just a, a sort of bit of a, an introduction to you. Is it true that a summary of your work history would be joined Ogilvy? Uh, that's. Um pretty accurate. It's a simplification, but it's accurate. I joined as a graduate trainee in 1988. Um, I had been actually a failed trainee teacher for a year before that. And I had um, a, a kind of stereo panic attack about teaching. Um, the first one was simply, it frightened me, the prospect that I might spend the whole of my life in educational institutions of one kind or another. And so going school, university, school, uh, struck me as a, a bit narrow. And the second thing, which is a sort of more embarrassing confession, is I also saw the quality of uh, uh, the uh, uh, of staff car parks and the generally <laughs> dismally tedious cars which teachers drove. And I thought, well, that might be all right when you're 45 or 50, but it's <laughs> not okay now. So I must admit, I must admit, the sheer materialism. Bear in mind, this was 1988 and a kind of uh, you know high point of the. Uh, Thatcher boom. Yeah. Um, it, it, it wasn't the time to do anything uh, um, uh, with great social purpose, shall we say. So I thought actually advertising was, a, and I still think it is actually, a pretty good combination of giving you a reasonable amount of money without selling out completely. In other words, you can still remain interested in people and problems and um, broader questions, um, but at the same time earn a reasonable living. And so to any sort of students listening, I'd say mm -hmm. uh, that still holds true. Yeah. Now, do you know that you were my first ever creative director in London wh when I came down? And uh, that was in the days, that'd be about 15 years ago. And in Smithfield, yeah, in uh, St John Street. And you came in for a period of about a month. That's right. Um, <laughs> working uh, in about 1990. Five? Yeah, that'd be right. There we go. God, my God, that perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in that period. I, I must say, the, your first few years as a creative director are horrible. Mm. Um, and the reason is there are certain aspects. Unless you are by temperament a complete control freak, which I'm not. Mm. Um, uh, but there are certain aspects of being a creative director which are so um, antipathetic to what what it is to be a good creative that it's very very difficult to handle the transition. Uh, first thing, of course, is that. By and large, as a creative, you're focused on one or two things. Mm. You don't have to multitask to a huge extent, although it's much more than you once did. Um, but also, you are given the luxury of time and you don't actually have to make decisions on the hoof. Mm. When suddenly, as creative director, you have to deal with seven things simultaneously. <laughs> um, a phone call is something you dread because it almost invariably means bad news of one kind or yeah. another. Yeah. And um, uh, you, uh, it's the difference, in a sense, between playing golf and playing cricket. You know, as a creative person, you put a ball down and you line it up and you think for a bit and then you hit it. And basically, as a as a creative director, people throw the balls at you. Yeah. Um, and so that's very very different. And so the whole time scale of the thing is different. And and um, and also you have to spend two years overcoming your urge to actually write every goddamn sentence of body copy mm. as well. Because of course your natural urge, quite rightly, as a creative person involved in creative execution, mm. is to be a control freak. 
and that business of actually mastering how to actually slacken off mm. uh, without feeling that you're actually somehow uh, f- uh, you know, effectively in dereliction of duty, that takes quite a bit of effort. Yeah. Now, in those days, it was uh, it was mainly print we were working on, um, and then digital came in round about that time and started to have a little bit of an impact. Um, has it had as big of an impact on the industry as people say it has, or uh, the impact of digital on the advertising industry has been perhaps t- um, in. Uh, it's been in some respects too great Mm. and in some respects too slight. Mm. First of all, um, I think we all made a mistake and I'm guilty of that as anybody else was because of course at the time I was not working in that agency as as director of an uh, overall group I was working in the direct agency. Mm. And the natural thing we all said in order to actually grow digital revenues was move money from TV and put it here. Mm. And I think that arises from a fundamental false dichotomy, which is the idea that we think of reach and customer engagement and contact as being uh, substitutable in one medium for contact in another. I would now argue, and this isn't just because my role has changed, I think actually it's because of research I've seen from Thinkbox, research I've seen from the IPA, quite a lot of economics work on how advertising works. I don't think you can substitute for big TV. I think big TV lends an aspect of trust to brands which you simply can't substitute in uh, other media very well. Not to say it's impossible, but economics has this concept of comparative advantage. And what is still true is that we can do lots of things in lots of different media. You can achieve different ends in different media. You can use TV as a direct response media. You can use direct mail as an awareness medium. But the fact is that they have different... Um, what what uh, David Ricardo, in his theory of comparative advantage, would say is that TV... Whereas both people can... Both media can do both things, TV is spectacularly better at creating certain values around brands and, and creating certain forms of human behaviour. For example, premiumization, I'd say getting people to pay more for things, getting people to value things more highly, uh, creating social norms. TV is much better, but it's also much better at what some economists call the brand as bond theory, which is that any manufacturer who invests a lot of money on their reputation visibly and is famous and has a big famous reputation is, for perfectly logical reasons, more trustworthy than someone who doesn't. Mm. And the reason is that if you've invested a lot in your reputation, you have a reputation to lose, and it's not in your economic interests to suddenly flog someone a crap television just to make a quick buck. But the very act of actually um, putting money into advertising, you're saying, I am committed to this product, I have Mm. faith in it, I believe it's a mass product that is of benefit to many, many people. Mm. Now, highly targeted digital stuff doesn't do that. It simply says that you might be the kind of person who finds this interesting, which is not the same message at all. Yeah. So let me give you an example of this. Um, everybody quite often says, well, why does Apple bother to advertise? Because actually, um, everybody loves Apple. It's a fantastic brand. The usability is amazing. The experience is fantastic. The word of mouth is practically on a par with the Moonies. Mm. You know, you have a cult following of fantastic, you know, uh, Mac fans who are uh, extremely useful or sometimes off-putting but generally useful evangelists for the brand why would you bother advertising? Well, 
I'll give you a nice example here, which is that advertising, to some extent, particularly in the IT category, is a measure of your commitment to the category. And when you advertise the iPad, it says, we believe this is, to some extent, the future of computing. We'll be investing in the iPad format for many, many years to come. Look at this big sunk cost we've engaged in. Okay. Now, there's another Apple product, which is actually nearly as good, uh, vastly cheaper, uh, and actually every sane home should have one, which is Apple TV. It's about 95 quid. It's a tiny little box. It plugs into the back of your television. You can listen to podcasts. You can send um, uh, audio from your um, uh, uh, your iPod to your hi-fi. Uh, you can um, uh, you know you can you can watch films on it. You can download a whole range of films. Uh, you can listen to your music collection through your telly or whatever. Um, but I, Apple's never advertised that. Mm. And I think in the consumer's mind, there's always this feeling: is this actually a really serious investment of Apple's, or is it Steve Jobs's hobby? Yeah. Is it just a hobby where actually we might ditch this format and not bother with it in two years' time and I end up paying 95 quid, which isn't very much money in the uh, consumer electronic space, and end up effectively beta-maxed? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm with a format that no one, no one anymore is willing to support. So it's vital to say that in some respects, um, the assumption that our... We were right, I think, to pay a lot of attention to digital because it is hugely important in its significance, not only for brands... And I, I echo Dave Trott's point that the obsession with brand as the only kind of measure for human decision-making has completely painted the advertising industry into a corner. Yeah. It was a defensive strategy which justified big television, but which also prevented the advertising industry from investigating any other forms of solution. Yeah. And you don't need me to say this, because if you listen to Dave Trott's podcast, you'll already heard him say it in language much better than mine, which is that effectively, I think he used the analogy, it became a kind of magic amulet that we all clung on to as the single thing we do. I don't think any models of advertising, regardless of whether it's the brand model or anything else, I don't think we should have a monolithic model of how advertising works. I think advertising works in multiple and complementary ways. And the idea that you can transfer money from X to Y... Uh, and necessarily not lose is quite often mistaken. I think there are a lot of brands now which should be spending more on, on, on large-scale television. Now, that's money, that's media money. What you shouldn't necessarily assume is that your intellectual attention goes where the money is. Mm. There's a very strong tendency that makes advertising the most strategic discipline. And it makes advertising the most strategic discipline because it's the most expensive. And therefore, the person in charge of a £10 million budget is going to be more senior than the person in charge of a £1 million budget. So I would say, if I were British Airways, I would actually say, let us continue to spend at old-fashioned levels on brand TV. But actually... Let's spend quite a lot of our time and intellectual effort looking at digital. So one of the problems is that we tend to assume that things that are expensive should be time-consuming and things that are time-consuming should be expensive. That isn't true. We should spend a lot of time on digital looking for solutions which are as near as damn it free in areas such as choice architecture, usability, um, user experience. Um, Behavioural economics is hugely valuable here. It provides a whole new kind of... Um, playground Mm. for anybody seeking to actually help a client with their digital. Uh, It also provides you with the opportunity to make your client 20 million quid um, for the cost of, you know, a few cups of tea, Mm. coffee, drugs, whatever. But actually, it's actually the case where you can brilliantly, as, as Benjamin Franklin said, you know, I can think you a fortune. 
you know, without needing any capital investment, I can come up with an idea which actually makes you a huge amount of money. The $300 million button, I think if you Google that, is an example where someone's done exactly that. They've had a really good insight into what's wrong about the design of this checkout procedure, which is that it asks you to register before you've bought. Mm. And they basically said by flipping that order and by changing one word on a button from register to continue, it made an online retailer in the US $300 million more in sales, directly attributable to that one change in twinkling of an eye. Now, we should be spending a lot of attention there. Mm. That doesn't mean that the money should necessarily follow the attention. It means, by the way, the fees should. You know, it means that the return for paying a really good digital person to think about your business can be enormous. Whoever came up with one of my, it's one of my just total little baby favourites. If you ask me, which idea do I wish I'd had most over the last uh, 10 years, it might be the Ocado Green Van. I'm a weird creative, I accept that, because partly my obsession <laughs> with economics leads me to judge creative not only on its superficial yeah. qualities, but on its sheer ingenuity. Mm. And so the Ocado Green Van, which is, you may want a 3.30 delivery and you may be collecting the kids from school at 5, therefore, you know, you can't afford to miss it. But half the people who order from Ocado go, I don't know, I mean, all bloody day, I don't give a shit when, I, when the bloody man comes. If that van's green and it means, you know, it saves the environment a bit, what the hell, I'll choose the green one. Mm. Um, I was also a contributor to a, a little thing which Ocado did do, which is printing out your receipt in order of perishability of the food. So you could pin it up in the fridge and basically it would say you've got to eat these three things today, eat these four things tomorrow, at these things by the weekend, and the rest of the things can wait. Yeah. You know, that kind of little thing, that what, it's a tiny little algorithm tweak which changes the, what changes the world. And I think in digital we should look for those. That doesn't mean, however, that we should, our media money should necessarily follow where our intellectual efforts go. Mm. Uh, there's a paper that's just come out exactly about this, which is um, that if you create cognitive difficulty to something, it tends to bring with it a sense that this is a more important decision. And, and so we spend a huge amount of time on decisions which are ultimately trivial but difficult, mm. and very little time on decisions which are actually quite easy but very, very important. It's why um, women actually, in many cases, will spend longer deliberating over which pair of shoes to buy than buying a flat. Right. This is not this is not just a, a sexist claim. There's evidence to show that yeah. it will occupy more time because it's an enormously difficult decision. You are, you are faced with a huge number of pairs of shoes. There are a huge number of other variables such as you know what clothes. My wife believes in a concept called colour coordination, where clothes <laughs> go with other items of clothing. I've never followed it myself. <laughs> it seems to just be an artificial limit to what you can wear. You know, if I have to wear clothes that actually colour coordinate with other items of clothes, then it makes the business of getting dressed more difficult. So why would I, why would I occupy cognitive energy in something so pointless? But, but nonetheless, if you... There's this recent paper that just came out a couple of days ago on the Marginal Revolution blog, all about this. That actually, that that actually, it's very difficult to make difficult decisions, and that has nothing to do with the importance. We may actually allocate intellectual effort, not necessarily in, in, in where, where things are important, but where they're difficult. Now that's you know that's a behavioural error, but it seems to me that the business has conducted that error because we should be spending quite a lot of we should be spending quite a lot of money on advertising still, even if we're spending most of our time thinking about digital. Mm. Now, you're just about to come to the end of your presidency, the IPA. 
what have been the highlights from the last year and, and what would your legacy be? I know you've been talking about behavioural economics. I suppose about one thing I'd love, I'd love to do is I think as a defensive strategy to justify what they made money from and what they were good at. This whole brand edifice was created, which doesn't do a bad job, by the way, of, you know, of justifying a certain kind of advertising. What it did was it painted the whole industry into a corner where, unless you have a brand question, don't talk to your ad agency. Mm-hmm. So we created an industry which basically said, unless you've got seven million quid to, to give to Rupert Murdoch, there's no point in talking to us. So our capacity to, to generate insights of our own without research, mm. our capacity to generate our own insights completely disappeared. Our capacity to act proactively completely disappeared because we were waiting for a client to come to us and say, I have this brand problem. And our capacity to actually operate on different layers with different problem-solving techniques. I'm totally a trottist on this. I, you know, your job, real creativity, you're not a stylist, you're a problem-solver. And his definition of creativity, which is you ask silly questions which lead you to look at problems in a new and different way. That, I think, is the right thing for ad agencies to be doing at all levels. Everything from totally scalable, everything from the design of your coupon to... Uh, whether actually Britain should work a four-day week. You know, one of the nice things with behavioural economics is it's fractal, it's scalable. You can, you, can, you can apply it to really, really trivial things, you can apply it to massive questions of human well-being. Mm. And what I'd like is, first of all, the agency of the future has to be able to, to solve multiple problems. Instead of saying, well, once we've come up with your central brand proposition, there's no future role for creativity for the next five years. Let's just hammer out this single proposition uh, tediously and debate sort of small aspects of execution which are of no interest to the board of directors of the company which we serve. We've made marketing synonymous with Marcoms. Marketing, and we are marketing services companies, should be about fundamental business questions quite a lot of the time, which is, you know, how do you create value that people are willing to pay for? Maybe about trade-offs. We create value that people aren't willing to pay for. How do we get them to pay for it somewhere else? Uh, you know, huge numbers of businesses. If you have a pub with a very nice view, you don't charge for the view, you charge more for the beer. Fundamental economic questions should allow marketing agencies to be much bigger and much broader. What we did is we painted ourselves into a specialist corner which suited five or six specialisms as a defensive approach. But as my question about this industry is it's half the size it should be. It should be three times as big and ten times more influential. Mm. We should be going, I, I take as purely a hobby, which is taking everything I've known about advertising and human behaviour and perception... I've just launched into a, using a spectator column as a bit of a, um, a, a bit of an out, a, a huge attack on high-speed rail, because high-speed rail is creating a kind of engineering value at the expense of human pleasure. It's actually treating objective value like journey time, something you can put on a spreadsheet, as if it's vastly superior to subjective value, mm. which might be making a station really nice and having free coffee on the trains. And this is, you know, high-speed rail is the most extreme case where a bunch of engineers are allowed to define what's important. And actually, nobody who's worked in an advertising industry should support high-speed rail because it is is a monstrous assault to the idea of, of subjectivity and subjective value. And so, you know, 
I, I genuinely think the ad industry should come out with really outrageous opinions. I mean, I, my personal view is we're totally wasting, you know, uh, about a quarter of the money we spend on healthcare, and you would actually achieve better outcomes if. Um, uh, I won't give everything away. I won't give everything away here. Uh, you can, well, you, first of all, you can achieve better outcomes if actually the health service spent more money on marketing and appearance and usability and less on treatment. Mm. That's the first thing. Uh, getting men to go to the doctor is the real problem. It's not the problem. The, the problem isn't really. You know, I mean, if, if you look at most GP visits, I think there are four female GP visits to every male GP visit. Um, it's one of the reasons I believe men should be taxed at a lower rate. In fact, um, <laughs> joke, joke, sorry. Um, but um, but but no. But actually, you know, there's a whole question of male health, which is not being addressed here, which is a psychological question. Mm. It's a behavioural question. It's not a question of actual treatment. Mm. Uh, another one is, if I were the government, and this is another small campaign I'm launching myself, the single best way you could improve human well-being. Well, actually, there is another way, which um, uh, a, a great expert of mine a great expert in this field, who's actually a professor of, of in this field, I won't name him, uh, he actually believes that actually the decriminalisation of ecstasy would have been the best way you could have actually improved human <laughs> well-being. Um, but leaving that to one side, um, uh, actually allowing people the freedom at least one or two weeks a month to work a four-day week of nine-hour days, creating a three-day weekend, would benefit human well-being, probably benefit the economy more, but it would benefit human well-being far more than the kind of proposed areas for government expenditure and of course an obsession with GDP which is an increasingly bad measure of human well-being yeah. so one of the things I like advertising to do is to get into the whole human well-being debate which is to say we have client companies and governments which are enthralled to a bunch of borderline Asperger's victims who are obsessed with numerical measures and are obsessed with the tangible world increasingly what makes us happy may have no connection with GDP or indeed or indeed what people will pay for. Yeah. This is a vital question. So I'll give you an interesting example which terrifies me, I mean, which is that I, I'm a bit of a right-wing libertarian nutter by temperament, but I'm also, I'm not, I'm not being an adherent of the Austrian school, I'm not a market fundamentalist. Mm. I think markets are very good and they're very useful, but I don't think they're perfect. They do a really good job of quite a lot of things. And actually, since they seem to work well, don't tamper with them, but do question them. And one of the, one of the interesting questions that, that struck me is that I don't complain about the BBC licence fee anymore. You know, well, why not? Well, it's traditional, of course, if you're a bit of a libertarian, to complain about this thing that actually television should be left to the marketplace, etc. But actually, my complaint about the BBC was it's, it took 120 quid from me every year and spent most of it on kind of Jonathan Ross-style entertainments on the BBC or football, neither of which I like. Okay, I, you know, I don't like expensive television for the most part. I also believe that those things should be done by ITV, by the way. You know, I see no reason to put those blockbuster things like celebrity dancing on ice, whatever it is, on the BBC. The market will actually produce those programmes brilliantly well and pay for them through advertising. What on earth is the point of, uh, you know, of funding those things through some public subscription? I still believe that. On the other hand, since the invention of Sky Plus, and since the invention of the BBC iPlayer and the iPad app for the BBC iPlayer, 
I can now derive 20 times more value from the BBC than I could 10 or 15 years ago, because if BBC4 puts out a documentary on the Routemaster bus, by the way, that to me is porn, okay, that, that's the kind of thing, you know, or, you know, I don't know, a documentary about bees and the Serengeti, or even better, Routemasters of the Serengeti, you know, <laughs> which, you know, if, you know um, if, if BBC4 puts that out and it broadcasts it only once at three o'clock in the morning, I can still watch it. Even better, I can watch it on a train because I've downloaded it to my laptop. Mm. So that means that actually of the BBC's good quality output, I now derive 40 times more utility than I did 20 years ago. So my argument is, I still think the BBC is imperfect, but actually it's well within my threshold of value for money, so let's not get angry about it anymore. Mm. Okay? And there are enormous cases in digital where spectacular value is being created with no economic value attaching to it at all. You know, so, uh, and so you know, we have to be slightly alert to this whole question because, mm. as someone put it, you know, when Henry Ford... I mean, th there's a possible economic disaster ahead. Tyler Cowen, in his book, The Great Stagnation, which is only available on the Kindle, makes the point that, you know, effectively, when Henry Ford invented the car industry, it created 10 million blue-collar jobs. Car workers, steel workers, gas station attendants, people operating gas stations, people working in car dealerships, people servicing your car, people, you know, etc. Now, Facebook employs, I think, 2,000 people. Now, admittedly, quite a few of them are billionaires, which is nice, but in terms of actually creating wealth and employment and actually... Um, and actually spreading it, it's doing a terrible job. Now, it seems to be creating a lot of value because loads of people spend more time on Facebook than they spend watching telly. Mm. I'm... I... Uh, that seems bizarre to me. I mean, I'm, I'm quite a heavy Facebook user, but the extent to which people seem to use it seems slightly bizarre to me. It, it, um, if I'm going to be nasty about this, it's just that our quality people not quite, with rather too much time on their hands. But nonetheless, patently, it's creating some value. But the extent to which it's spreading the wealth that it's generated is very, very inexact, very imperfect. And so we've got to ask some bloody tough questions about that, because, you know, it's perfectly possible that the ways that improve our lives don't do much to actually uh, generate employment or economic value. The next part of Rory's interview is coming soon, so stay tuned. Finally, we've got some helpful tips from Glenn Taylor, the founder of Taylor Gems. You'll find a link to their website on the blog. They specialise in photoreal 3D work that can be used across everything from print to film to interactive. So here are Glenn's big five tips on how to approach creative production. My first tip would be to get the best from any campaign, they need to have a basic understanding of all the disciplines that we use. Good creative work starts with, with an idea. And I think sometimes people can get too mixed up in the medium in which it's going into. And the best work that we see that gets produced is when the creatives and the producers have a good understanding of, of the disciplines. They know how photography works, they know how CG works, how live action works and how post works. And then when we start to explore and show them the different technologies or techniques that we've got to use each part of those production disciplines and put forward ideas that can actually shave production budgets down, increase the level of creativity that they can apply to different mediums. You can see that 
we kind of achieve a much higher, higher level of um, creative work in their campaign. My next tip would definitely be to get us involved early because I think as, you're, as they're originating the ideas, um, without them becoming too formed, it needs to be a partnership of how we can deliver the production, how we can build the production. And there are now so many different technologies open to us of how we can combine our print within our live action, our digital work into our TV commercials and our digital work into our print work. It's only as we start developing and working with the idea that we, we start costing any projects out that we really then can open up all these different advantages of how we can expand the creativity in campaigns, how we can try a new technique in, in technology that's going to allow us to do banner ads as well as um, actual TV commercials because we can cross over in how we use it. Photography we're using more and more across all our production. We have a massive library of, of photographic material, stock material that we've built up over 10 years and we've used that in, in Motorola, in Bermuda and it's been, it's been invaluable really because we haven't had to send anyone around the world to shoot it. The best work is definitely done where we're interacting with that idea and developing that idea because I think you get a lot more value because um, you're utilising our, our ultimate skills. My next tip would be for agencies to take a more consolidated approach to how they look to produce their ideas. I think our traditional past has led us to run print production separate from digital production separate from TV productions and I think in those days it kind of worked that way but as we move forward into a digital environment it's, it's become so clear that the idea comes first and as production skills merge so do the possibilities of how we create them so having the agency on board and understanding the process is really important to actually get the best from it and I think it goes back to the the agencies hold a certain level of responsibility to to educate their employees and then they will definitely see more creative executions and campaigns coming forward. My next point is for when agencies are planning their production schedules to actually consider um, the, the new production solutions of how we how we deliver things because to achieve the most from it, generally it's always time that restricts us from getting the best workout. And quite often the time is actually there in the schedule, but it's probably agencies are still focused around production pipelines and timelines that traditionally they were using four or five years ago. And I think as we've changed our production solutions to offer more creative potential, I think it's you know paramount that the agencies start changing the way they work slightly just to find more time because CGI being our most dominant discipline, it, de it definitely benefits from having more time to plan and start productions earlier. My final tip would definitely be for agencies and suppliers to work together as a partnership. I think historically we've been a bit guilty that there's been strong divides between what the agency, where the agency are and where the production houses are. And as technology is becoming a lot more um, important in the production of ideas it's, so therefore is the knowledge of how it all works um, and the trust that needs to be built up between a supplier and an agency is, is really important the climate that we all work within at the moment the budgets aren't what they used to be and the timelines and the schedules aren't what they used to be so we need to pull favours in different places to get the best results and by having an understanding agency you're working with I know that we definitely get better results that way. 
Well, there we go. We've made it to the end of episode two. Thanks for keeping me company through to the end here. Remember the competition? So there's ten random CDs of variable quality up for grabs to the first person to correctly identify the three jingles hidden in the podcast. And if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, yes, I am willing to sell out. Please drop me a line. Or if you fancy donating a prize that's better than a pile of crappy CDs, then I'd also love to hear from you. But for now, toodaloo. Love to your mother. Cheerio.